Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts one more time as we turn to God's word. Father, we thank you that we have this precious treasure of your word. And we thank you, Lord, for the, the privilege we have of being able to read it. And Lord, even greater privilege that you, through your spirit, give us understanding. Lord, there is no other book like this in the history of the world. No other book that speaks with such clarity and with such authority about the world, about our own lives, about our own destiny. And Lord, we just thank you that your word reaches us right where we are. And this morning, Father, I pray that you would just speak to each and every one of us here. And that through these portions that we studied this morning, you would just set our hearts on fire for you. Just give us a deeper and greater love for that which is true. And Lord, a hatred for everything that is false. Everything that is of the devil, we pray. And so, Lord, that we would grow in knowledge and grace, coming, Lord, more and more into that likeness of our Lord and Saviour Jesus. So we just give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Almost there. Another three sessions this morning included, and we'll have covered the entire Bible this year, starting back in January in the book of Genesis and journeying all the way through. We've come as far this morning as the, the last three, or four, sorry, of the, uh, the Hebrew Christian epistles. So we're looking at this group of uh, letters uh, that occur at the end of the New Testament, starting with the book of Hebrews, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, uh, and James and First and Second Peter we looked at last week. And then this morning we're going to conclude and look at 1, 2, and 3 John. And then finally, this incredible, just one chapter book of Jude. So we'll jump straight in with uh, the first of uh, John's letters, the first epistle of John. Um, John was this incredible character. We have, of course, the Gospel of John, uh, and we're familiar with John because of that. He was one of the, the disciples that were closest to Jesus. Jesus had his own kind of inner group of disciples. Amongst the twelve, there were three um, that were very close to him. That when Jesus had these kind of times alone, or very often these three were called aside, John being one of those. And <clears throat> this letter seems to have been written toward the end of the first century. So right at the end of that first century, one of the last um, things to have been written, many commentators believe that it was after John had returned from Patmos. Um, so after he'd received the revelation um, that we have recorded as the book of Revelation, uh, then John returns and then starts to write these letters because of the problems that were starting to occur in the church. Now, legend has it, whether it's true or not, there's various question marks over it, but there's a lot of commentators that make reference to, uh, and there's certainly some evidence to support the fact that John had been captured by uh, the Romans. Um, he was about to be boiled alive in a vat of uh, burning oil. Uh, as they placed him in it, he did not burn, apparently. Uh, this incensed the emperor so much that he had John exiled to Patmos, uh, which was basically a of a mining colony at the time and uh, very hard labour and so on. And John was exiled to this place. And it's while he's there that he receives the book of Revelation. Certainly that much is true. Um, but afterwards John returns and takes over at Ephesus. Um, John seemingly having a, a responsibility, a pastoral responsibility over the fellowship there, but clearly has real concerns about other Christians and other churches. And that's what the, the basis of these letters really is. And 
we see that by the end of the first century, Gnosticism had crept into the church. Now that's simply a, a belief by this. Some they had additional knowledge to things that were revealed by the apostles or things that have been recorded in scripture that they'd gained additional knowledge and so on. Now the Greeks, of course, loved their knowledge. Um, and of course we're very familiar with the whole idea of Greek philosophy. Well, they tried to make a distinction between Jesus and the Christ. So they talked about the man, Jesus, but then they talked about the anointing that came upon Jesus as being the anointing of the Christ, as it were. Um, so try to separate these two uh, factors in a sense. So what they were saying was that the Christ was this uh, divine uh, emanation which came upon Jesus at the time of his baptism. So in other words, their position was that Jesus was an ordinary man but he had this special anointing from God for his ministry. And of course, that's heresy. You know, According to them, Jesus did die, but the Christ did not die. So whilst they accept that Jesus physically died on the cross, the Christ element uh, was, was not subject to that, which makes a mockery of the gospel, of course. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins. Um, and unless it was God that was stepping in and paying that price, no human being could pay that price. As Jerob was just talking a moment ago, um, speaking about this propitiation, this payment in full, not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. We'll look at that in a moment again. But John really, as he starts to write this first epistle, confronts this heresy. And we'll see that as we go through. <clears throat> now, as we look at this, uh, we start to see groupings of sevens. We'll comment on that in a minute. But what John does really is contrast truth and error. So as we go through, and this is a kind of a one breakdown that we could have of the, uh, the first epistle of John. Um, the first section from chapter 1, Verse 5 after, after the intro, really up to chapter 2, 11, it's really the contrast between light and darkness. And then the contrast carries on between the Father and the world into chapter 2, 17. And then from 2, 18 to 2, 28, it's really the contrast between Christ and the Antichrist. And then picking up chapter 2, 29 to chapter 3, 24, it's good works versus evil works. And then we move on to chapter 4. And the first six verses, really, the contrast there is between the Holy Spirit and error, that which is not of God. And then from verse uh, 7 of chapter 4 through to verse 21, it's love versus pious pretense. Of course, we're not guilty of that, of course, at all, are we? But, you know, actually, the reality is that we all have that time when we say things because we know it's the right thing to say, but there may not be that connection to our heart. Um, and John really challenges that. Uh, and then finally, chapter 5, verse uh, 1 through to the end, it's really that which is born of God to that which is born of the Spirit. Now again, you notice we've got sevens. John uses this heptatic structure. It's a group of things in sevens. Um, now, maybe this is because of his experience on Patmos with receiving the revelation, and, and we'll look at that over the next couple of weeks, and we see there are so many sevens that occur throughout Revelation. Now, biblically, the number seven has reference to complete. A uh, number of times it's used has that kind of uh, um, uh, connotation. John seemingly using the same kind of idea, uh, but you also find that John's gospel also is grouped in sevens. Um, and as and when we get opportunity to study John's gospel as a fellowship, um, if uh, the Lord tarries, then we'll see again that throughout the gospel of John, he groups things in sevens. Well, another grouping uh, that we see um, is seven tests, if you like, uh, as evidence 
of a true Christian. Now these are exactly the same chapter or, or the kind of breakdowns as you go through the book, but they also come through in those sections. So the first test, or the first evidence that you are a Christian is your profession. You know, this isn't something you just believe and it's a quiet thing in your own heart. This is something that is a lifestyle and it should be seen from the way you live, from the things you say, from that which you do. Um, and there's obviously, you know, if somebody says that they're a Christian, but, you know, they don't really need to go to church. And, you know, well, they don't really need to read the Bible. They don't really need to pray. Well, straight away, we've got to be questioning. You know, has there really been a change there? So your profession is the first test that John alludes to. Secondly, desire. What is your desire for? What do you desire? You know, if your desire is for things of this world uh, and not for things of God, well, then you need to, as Paul says, uh, examine yourself. Doctrine is another one. And I think this is interesting. We talked about this. It came up a few weeks ago um, when we were looking at Timothy. How important doctrine is and how it's significant, I think, that when you find somebody that does not want to talk about doctrine, very often as you start asking questions, you'll find they have real problems in other areas of their religious experience, if I may put it that way. Because very often um, they may have made some sort of profession to Christianity but maybe they've never yet found Christ. And there is a big difference between the two. Many people that go to church have had some sort of religious experience, um, and they would profess to be Christians, but they've never yet met Christ. And doctrine is one of the key things. If you have a love of God's word, a love of the truth, uh, then it's very evident that that which has happened in you has been genuinely of God. Conduct is another thing. And it's another great indicator because many people think it's fine to go around and say they're a Christian and yet they'll smoke, they'll drink, they'll swear, they'll do all sorts of things and then they'll justify it. And of course, our conduct as Christians should be very, very different from the people that are in the world. You know, Paul makes it very clear we should not let any corrupt words proceed out of our mouths. You know, Paul speaks of being sober, sober-minded. Now, that's not just, we talked about this again when we're looking at Timothy, not just in reference to alcohol. Of course, we should be sober in that respect as well, but in terms of our conduct in all areas. So, then discernment. Of course, if you are a born-again believer, if you truly are a Christian, then there should be a discernment in your life. You should be able to discern between that which is true and that which is false. Next is motive. And uh, John alludes to these things. And then finally, the new birth itself. And these are all things that should be really evidence uh, that you are a born-again, spirit-filled, maturing Christian. So, another grouping that we see, because uh, again, seven marks, seven things that should be obvious to anybody that looks in from the outside. Love should be there. I mean, this is one of the things that John will major on, that we are to love each other. It's one of the principal commandments that we're given. Obedience to sound doctrine, faith that overcomes the world, the witness of the Spirit, assurance through the Word, confidence in prayer, and knowledge of spiritual realities. Now, I encourage you, when you get the the slides, you can have a look back through these. Go through them. Ask yourself questions. I was doing this myself this week. You know, do other people see that love in me? At times, I know the answer is no. You know, but it should be always there. And we should be really seeking and striving to allow God to sit on the driving seat of our life. You know, obedience to sound doctrine. Again, that faith that overcomes the world. And if we're honest, most of us struggle with that on a weekly basis because things happen that cause us to doubt, cause us to question, cause us to try and take the control, the reins back from God and say, well, actually, God, thanks for getting me this far, but I need to sort this problem out now. 
But do we have that faith? Whatever the circumstances, the witness of the Spirit in our own lives, that uh, kind of uh, that knowledge of the Spirit indwelling us, and again, uh, that should be very evident as people look at our lives. The assurance through the Word, and the Word gives us such great assurances of, of our faith, of our salvation, of our future. A confidence in prayer. You know, an evidence of that is the fact that you will pray. If you don't have much confidence in prayer, you probably won't pray. But if you are really confident that God will answer your prayers, you'll find yourself praying more and more. And finally, knowledge of spiritual realities. You know, Paul makes it very clear again. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You know, there's principalities and powers at work in this world behind all the things that are going on. And it's understanding those things are real. It's not just some kind of um, myth or fable. Um, these r- things are there. Is that we are in a spiritual warfare. So, again, uh, quite a helpful list to look at and uh, kind, of a, kind of a tick list, as, a, as it were, to look at our own lives. But we also find that um, we're given practical instructions regarding our walk. Now, certainly the first couple of chapters we see these things. The, again, a list of seven. We're not to walk in darkness, but we are to walk in the light. Now, you may kind of think there's a, a tautology, kind of redundancy there, but there's a big difference between not just not walking in darkness, but then making a decision to walk in the light. We're to walk in humility as well. We're to walk with the advocate. We're to walk under commandment. We're to walk in love and we're to walk in truth. Now, all of those we could spend time going through and studying. Um, But again, another helpful list to look at our own lives and do a kind of spiritual health check. Well, John gives a number of reasons for writing. And we see, again, a list of seven. Firstly, to declare what he had seen. That's the first thing he states in the opening uh, of the, the epistle, in the first three verses. That he wanted to write to declare what he had seen. He'd been an eyewitness of these things. And again, he makes it clear that another reason for writing wasn't just to make a declaration, but that as part of that declaration, our joy might be full. And I say our joy because he's writing, of course, to Hebrew Christians in the the first century, but it's just as applicable to us today, that our joy might be full. Also, he writes, he makes it very clear that we would not sin. See, John's desire and all that he'd experienced, all that he'd gone through, you know, he writes in a, in, a, in a kind of you know, pleading with us almost that you don't sin, that you don't allow that old life to have precedence. But you put to death that old life. You live the new life. A number of times John will say something that troubles believers sometimes. And it's that you know, that which is born of God does not sin. And people look at their own lives and think, well, I sinned. Does that mean I'm not born of God? Well, what John's saying is that the new life that is from God is incapable of sinning because it's from God. Now, what we have to learn to do is to put to death the old natural way of doing things and learn to live with that new life embracing everything we do. So um, if we are living, walking by faith, walking according to the Spirit and so on, we won't sin. The sin part comes from the old life that is always there, uh, kind of knocking at the door and nipping at our heels, trying to um, cause us a stumble. And the writer of the Hebrews makes that great comment, uh, Hebrews 12, about the sin which so easily ensnares. You know, we are given a new heart when we become born again, but we are to renew our mind. 
So it's this kind of a thought process. We have to go through this undoing the things we have learned and learn to do things differently. Thinking differently. And Paul in the book of Romans talks about being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Another reason that John writes is to encourage fathers, young men and children. And there's that little portion in chapter 2 where he says, that, I've written to you fathers, I've written to you young, young men, I've written to you children. And again, it's to encourage them in their walk. We also see that another reason to write him was to encourage the, the hearers, the readers of this epistle, to reject the lies and embrace truth. You know, this isn't just some kind of game we're playing. We're talking about eternal consequences. And also he writes to warn us of seducers, which will get worse and worse in the days leading up to Christ's return. And so this warning to us is very applicable. And then finally, uh, a great uh, uh, thing that John writes that he wants us to know is that he's written that we may know we have eternal life. You know, if you speak to anybody and they're not sure whether they're saved, they're probably not. Because if you're saved, you know you are saved. You know, it's, it's just a, you know, you never go to anybody and ask them, have you been born? And they go, oh, I'm not sure, I don't know. You know, you just know it. Well, when you are born again, it is just as stark a contrast as that. We know we have been born again if you have been born again. Your life is different. And uh, that's what we see. Now, the first epistle of John is actually quite a um, landmark epistle um, in the life of Calvary Chapel. Um, it was this uh, book that Pastor Chuck Smith decided, uh, felt led to teach through. He'd been at a church in America where he'd been a pastor for a couple of years. And as with many pastors, and particularly I know many in this country, they have their list of sermons. And he'd been at a number of churches already. He talked through his list of sermons. And he got about two years' worth of material. Um, and he was getting to the end of that two years' worth of material. And typically, it's time to move on. Nothing else to say, so let's go and do it all again somewhere else. But the problem was, he really liked where he was, because it was a nice it's Huntington Beach area in America. It was a nice environment and so on. And so he thought, you know, really like to stay here. Um, but I've taught everything I know. What am I going to do? And he came across a, a little pocket Bible handbook, um, and in there, it was just talking about the way we can just study scripture verse by verse. And one of the examples that was given was the epistle of John, uh, first John and taking, taking it through step by step. So over the subsequent weeks, um, Pastor Chuck took the congregation through this and, you know, just studying each week for the next bit, just taking through verse by verse. And when he got to the end of it, it was like, wow, this is incredible. And suddenly Pastor Chuck realized, Actually, we've got the whole Bible we could do this with. And so we went back in the book of Romans, and they went from Romans, and that really was the beginning of what became Calvary Chapel. Um, so this book, in many ways, is a very uh, significant book um, for us. And there's so much here in terms of instruction and information. Other commentators have also made the comment that with First, Second, and Third John, it can be seen in some senses as an expansion on what Jesus said. Um, and John records in the Gospel of John where Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." And some have alluded to the fact that First John really speaks of the way, not just the, Jesus as the way, but the way we should live, and we should live in that way, the way that we've been called to. Um, the truth we've seen mentioned uh, in the second epistle. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then finally, the life uh, in the third one. So it's kind of an expansion of that idea. Uh, and certainly a number of commentators uh, make mention to that. Well, let's just look at some of the verses in First John. So it just opens up and John says, That which was from the beginning. 
Now, that's not dissimilar to the way that his gospel opens up. Speaking of Christ who was there from before the beginning began. And that's exactly really the same import here. That which was from the beginning. You know, Jesus was there at the very start of time, of matter, of energy, of everything. Jesus is outside of all of those things because he is God. He's the creator. But then John says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. Again, speaking of Jesus, speaking of the one who is outside of time and eternity, and yet chose to enter into time and eternity, chose to come to this earth as just a tiny baby, to grow, live a sinless life, but then to lay down his life so that we could be forgiven our sins, that there would be a price. I love that, that bit that Jared quoted earlier. And we've used that a number of times already uh, in different teachings that we've gone through. But the whole idea that God and Jesus had this kind of conversation before time began, you know, in, uh, in the depths of eternity somewhere, you know, that Jesus was willing, because he loved us so much, to step in and pay everything. And that's exactly what he did, you know. And one of the lines in that is implying that if you're going to pay it, you have to pay everything. There must be nothing left unpaid. And Jesus agrees to do that. And of course we know that's what Jesus did. You know, as you sit here this morning, if you are born again, there is no sin that you will be judged for now. Because it has all been paid for. It's incredible. It's it's mind-blowing. We we feel, uh, well, helpless and, and almost destitute as we start to think about it because there's nothing we could do about it there's nothing we've done to earn it or deserve it but because of his love for us God through Christ has given us this complete pardon from our sin because Jesus has paid for it you see divine justice had to be met God couldn't just ignore our sin and some people think that's what God will do a number of people have this concept that, you know, if I've done good things, then I'll get to go to heaven. You know, certainly I speak to a number of Muslims. That's their understanding of how they'll be saved. If they've done lots of good stuff, they get to go to heaven. Well, look, if you've done good stuff, great. But what about the bad stuff? If you stand before a human judge, you'll be judged according to that which you've done wrong, not before, not regarding to that which you've done right. You know, whatever you've done right is irrelevant. You're judged according to the crime you've committed. And that's a human judge. Well, God will be no different. And of course, God demands justice. And the only way his justice could be fully satisfied was that the price be paid. And that's what Christ did for us. Verse 2 says, For the life was manifest, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifest unto us. Again, John making it clear that this is an eyewitness account. He's seen these things. This isn't just some um, belief that's been passed down. John himself, who's recorded this for us, was there. He met with, he spoke with Jesus. He learned from him, he was taught by him. All of these things he's testifying to as the truth. Carries on and says, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with his son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy might be full. Again, this isn't just some um, dream that we're buying into. It's not just some kind of utopian kind of ideology that hopefully... No, no, this is the truth. This is the way it is. And John says that our joy can be full. 
And again, joy, very different from happiness. Happiness is very transient, very fickle, subject to change with our circumstances. But joy is something that is so deep-rooted that nothing can change the deep-rooted joy that we have, knowing that our eternity is secure. Whatever happens in this life, our eternity is secure. So again, really the first reason for writing is declare what he's seen and then the second, that our joy might be full. And we went through that list of these seven things that John alludes to, specific reasons for writing this. Well, verse 5 we then read, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. I love this because it's one of those verses that we kind of read over and immediately we try and put our own explanation on this. Because it says God is light, so we start thinking, well, God is like light. No, it doesn't say God is like light. It says God is light. It's an incredible statement in and of itself. Now, if we jump back to the book of Genesis for a second, verse 3 of chapter 1, we're familiar, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's how it's translated. We're very familiar with that and so on. But if we look at the Hebrew that we have there, We've got, effectively, the, the transliteration. It's said Elohim. This is the word that we have in the Hebrew. Be light, be light. So you've got Heya, which is the be, and then Oa, which is the, the Hebrew word for light. And again, the same word here, and then the same word here. So literally, it's said God, Elohim, be light, be light. That's the literal translation of the wording we have. Uh, we have, if you look at just, you don't need to know Hebrew, but if you look at the shape of the letters here, okay, um, you can see exactly the shape, same shape here, and here, okay, this is simply just a grammatical um, connection to join the words together. But that's what it says. Now, that means that we can also legitimately translate that, not just as it is, let, the, uh, let light be light, but let the light illuminate. Because it's saying let light, which is already there, be light. So let light illuminate. Now, I think that's really fascinating because when we look at Isaiah 45 verse 7, we see there, um, Isaiah records, God speaking, but I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, if we just look, we've got two different words in the Hebrew. We've got a yatsa, uh, which is that I form the light. Now, that word is, simply means to mold into a form, but it's molding something that already exists. So God says, I form the light, but it already exists. But then he says, I create darkness. Now the word for create is bara, which means literally out of nothing. So darkness is created out of nothing. See, darkness doesn't exist. You, there's no measure for darkness, except the absence of light. We measure darkness by the amount of light or lack of there is. But light is something that, according to these verses, is pre-existent. And I think this is fascinating because... We told that Jesus again was pre-existent. Light was pre-existent in the person of Jesus. God commands the light to shine out of the darkness, and then the light simply illuminated. So, really, Jesus Christ, the pre-existent one, who is the light, created all things. Now, the reason I find this very fascinating is because, from a uh, physics point of view, and I don't want to lose you in the details here, but just just bear with me with this. We're told that every particle has an antiparticle. And basically, if they collide, if they bump into each other, an antiparticle and a particle, they collide, they annihilate each other, but what they will do is produce a photon, which is the smallest measurable unit of light. But we're told it's a reversible reaction. In other words, that reaction could go both ways. So what 
scientists, what physicists have theorised, is that if you started with just light, you could end up with matter. Now, that's purely done not from a biblical perspective or anybody trying to prove what the Bible says. This is a, 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 a discovery, a, a theory that's been proposed um, by those into to physics and, and so on. So the suggestion is that light on its own could create matter. Now, how incre- incredible that is, because what is it that we're told in Scripture? That Jesus, who is the light, created all things. Now, light is still one of those things that you know physicists still struggle with. Is it a wave? Is it a particle? How you know? How do, is it, it's still one um, um, one uh, physicist won the Nobel Prize for making the point that the light is a wave, uh, and then his son won the Nobel Prize a little bit later on um, for completely the contrary to that. And so we we still don't fully understand these things. But I just think it's interesting that the more science discovers, the more it confirms that which the Bible has already said. So as we read these things, be careful of immediately trying to put your own explanation on there. And there's nothing that's going to contradict between science and the Word of God. And the more science discovers, the more it confirms what the Word of God says. And of course, interestingly, when we get to Revelation a couple of weeks' time, we'll conclude the book of Revelation, there won't be a sun, there won't be need for a sun, because the Lamb will be the light. So we'll comment on those things when we get there. So, building on this, John says, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. What a challenging statement that is. So if we say we we have fellowship with him, if we say that we're followers of Jesus Christ, but if we then walk in darkness, if we do things that we know are wrong, John says, you're lying. And you do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You know, the implication here, of course, is that we can't truly have fellowship with each other unless we are all seeking to walk in the light. And if any one of us chooses not to walk in the light, there'll be an impact on all of us. and that's exactly what Paul tells us again about how the body works, how the church functions. John carries on and says, and I love this, uh, this next section. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You know, there's a humility that's required for here. Because we've got to admit that we are sinful. We don't like doing that because we all like to think we're good people. And the number of people that I've spoken to and done the, the kind of the good person test on. You know, do you think you're a good person? Oh, yes, I'm a good person. Okay. Have you ever lied? Well, yes, I've lied. But what does that make you? A liar? Yeah. Have you ever stolen anything? Well, there was a long time ago. What's the time changes it, does it? You know, you go through just some of the Ten Commandments and people very quickly realize that by God's standard, we've broken every one of God's laws. Now do we think we're good? Really? And see, this is what Paul tells us the purpose of the law is. The law is there to confine all under sin, to show us that we are sinful. If we say we have no sin, we're deluding ourselves, is the implication. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a statement. I'm so glad this verse is in the Bible. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. 
He's faithful because he's made these promises to us. He's just because upon Jesus fell the wrath of God. God was totally just in forgiving us because Jesus paid the price. Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Down to the last little spot of sin in your life. Everything totally cleansed. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Moving into chapter 2, John opens and says, My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. It's like, look, I've seen so much. I've been there. I saw Jesus. I talked with Jesus. I'm pleading with you. Just think about this. Think of what you've got. Think of the incredible salvation you've been given. I'm writing to you so that you kind of wake up and realize and don't sin. There's no need to sin, in a sense, once you're a Christian. Because we have a new life, a new power that is not of ourselves, that we can rely on and draw on so that we can live a godly life. And the only reason we will stumble and fall is if we choose not to rely or lean on that power. But, John says, if any man does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. An advocate... It's simply one who speaks well on behalf of another. And whenever you go to a holy God, we've got somebody that will step in. Jesus. It's um, Paul Washer, um, in a great teaching he does on the gospel, speaks there of the nature of sin in our own lives. And he says, you know, if we were to take any one of you this morning, I'm not going to pick you, pick anyone by name, but if we could put your life up on the screen and just play back for everybody to see everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever said and done, you know, all the things that nobody else knows about you, and we just played it back and we sat and watched it, even just the edited highlights, you would probably never want to come back to this church again. You would feel so ashamed and so embarrassed. And that would be in the company of like-minded sinners. People who are just as bad as you are. So what will it be like before a holy God? As everything you've ever thought, said and done is played back. Except for us, we have an advocate. And when that is played, all we see is the beautiful, brilliant whiteness of Jesus' perfection and purity. Because our sin has been paid for. It was all transferred to his account. What an incredible saviour. And we're told, and he is the payment in full. That's what that word propitiation means. Payment in full. For our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, John then goes on and says, look, don't love the world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life... Is not of the Father, um, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. Now, notice the things that John lists us there. Uh, we have these things here in verse 16. The lust of the flesh. Okay? Now, think back to the Garden of Eden, because all of these things are played out. The lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You see... It's actually in the reverse order the way it occurs in Genesis. Because in Genesis there's that pride. Did God really say, are you not allowed to take of that tree? I said, well, I suppose I could, yeah. So we have the pride element. 
rejecting God's wisdom, God's voice. And then the lust of the eyes, because Eve looks, and of course the fruit looks good to take. Well, isn't that the way sin is? It's appealing to the natural senses. And then, of course, the lust of the flesh. She then bites into this fruit. Again, the world passes away. None of those things matter. They're not going to last. But he that does the will of God abides forever. Chapter 3 opens with this just, again, incredible statement. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not because it knew not him. Or knew him not. Now, again, you'll find that to try and be politically correct, some translations, modern translations, will change this to the children of God. Now, okay, I understand what they're saying, but it's missing the point. Because we've been called the sons of God. In other words, you've been given the place of the firstborn. If you understand the culture, the Jewish culture at that time was that the son, the firstborn son, will be the one to inherit everything. You don't want to be just one of the children, because you may not get a full share in that sense. What this is saying is that what love God has poured upon us, that we have been given the place of the firstborn. What love that really is. You know, it's incredible that we've been saved, and we just talked about that a moment ago, but we've been given this inheritance that's awaiting us. It's amazing. All that is laid up that we still are yet to fully understand and appreciate what is yet to come for us. But what love. It carries on. Behold, now we are the sons of God. It has not yet appeared what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You see, we don't yet fully understand God. We've not seen his likeness. Um, Jesus came to manifest Himself, manifest the Father to us, but we've not yet seen God in the way that we will, will yet in the future see him. But there will come a time that we are transformed. These earthly bodies, will these, they're, they're, gonna, they're corruptible, but we're going to put on incorruption. We'll be given new bodies fit for eternity. And we have this hope, as John says, and every man that has this hope in him purifies himself. You know, knowing that we're getting ready for something so special, that should be incentive enough for us to make sure that your life is pure, even as he, God, is pure. Whoever commits sin transgresses also the law. For sin is transgression of the law. A great little summary statement there, but sin, if you kind of, what is sin? Sin is transgression of God's law. Sin is not when we do something to offend one of the standards or laws that we ourselves have put in place. It's transgression of God's law. So the world today is very good at rewriting the rules and the laws and then saying, well, it's not sin. Well, it doesn't matter what the world thinks. It doesn't matter how the world wants to rewrite the laws and the rules because it's God's law that matters, not our opinion. It carries on, verse 23 of John chapter th- uh, John, 1 John 3. Uh, and this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of Jesus Christ, or the name of his son, Jesus Christ, uh, and love one another as he gave us commandments. So this is really the... Um, uh, principal point that we're being told. And he that keeps his commandment dwells in him and he in him. And hereby we know that he abides in us by the spirit which he has given us. I mean, there's a couple of statements there. But firstly, that you know we are to love each other. This is a, the bedrock of Christianity. Because he loved us. But also it speaks again of the assurance we have of the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Chapter 4 opens and just warns us about the other spirits. You know, Beloved, 
believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world, and hereby you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And what John is saying is anybody that tries to say that Jesus is not fully God or Jesus isn't you know, of the same essence and nature of the Father, that's not of God. And of course many cults have sprung up suggesting these kind of ideas. And various other religions again suggest those things. And John makes it very clear, that's not of God. And he says, and this is that spirit of Antichrist, where you have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. You are of God, little children, Hannah, and have overcome them. And again, if you mark verses in your Bible, this is another great one to, to mark. 1 John 4, 4. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It's kind of those every day you should remind yourself of that before you step out of the house in the morning. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. What comfort that can bring. And then we're told that whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Not work, our faith. You don't have to strive to overcome the world, you need to have faith. And that will be that which overcomes the world. Because it's faith that God will do in us that which we cannot do of ourselves. You can't defeat sin by a decision, by a New Year's resolution or whatever. So if you're waiting for the new year, you're going to make a resolution, I'm going to stop doing this, forget it, it's not going to work. All right? But it's faith. It's faith that Jesus Christ will work in you something that you could never have done and can never do by your efforts. And he does it in such a way that it's just breathtakingly simple and beautiful. Who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. <clears throat> this is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. What a statement that is. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three, they're one. Great verse to tell us about the Trinity. This incredible doctrine that's still so hard for us to try and explain. We use all sorts of analogies. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three are agree in one. We could spend a long time unpacking this. But I just want to draw your attention because if you use other translations, you'll find it says something like this. And this is from the uh, American Standard. Um, verse 7, notice, For there are three that testify. And then nothing. And then we jump to verse 8, The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. Now, if you look again, that's what we had previously. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood. Now, you'll find almost all modern translations do this. They miss this out because they say that this is not found in the earliest manuscripts. Now, what they mean by that is, if you go back to the Alexandra manuscripts, the Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and so on, they're not in there. True. But you see, they are bad manuscripts. They came from the home of the Gnostics who didn't want to acknowledge that Jesus Christ was God. So it's no surprise that these verses are, are omitted from those um, manuscripts that we have. And this has become a bit of a controversy. It's known as the Johannine Comma. I got into a debate some years ago with somebody who really um, riled me because they told a, a very sincere Christian, 
Oh, well, that was a mistake, it shouldn't be in there. And this person had used these verses in speaking to Jehovah's Witnesses. And the Jehovah's Witness had said, oh, that's not in the original. And this person had gone back to this other Christian and question, And he said, oh, no, that's not there, that's what's wrong. And it totally undermined her faith in Scripture. If I can't trust this, then what can I trust? Which verses should be there? Which verses shouldn't be there? Good question. What can we trust? Now, as I said, it's effectively omitted in many modern versions. The NIV footnote actually says this. You might not be able to read the text there, but this is just copied and pasted from it. Uh, It actually just says, not found in any Greek manuscript before the 16th century. And many commentaries you'll see um, will actually have the same thing. I'm sorry, that's not true. You see, it's quoted by a gentleman by the name of Cyprian, a place called Carthage, in 250 AD. I think you'll agree that's before the 16th century. It's also part of a Latin manuscript which is referred to as R. They're coded by letters and numbers. And that dates to 100 years before the Alexandrian manuscripts of Sinaiticus of Vaticanus. So I need to go back. Um, It's quoted by many African bishops uh, in the 4th century. Um, from 430 to 480 AD in arguments against Arianism which was a heresy that would, had risen at that time it's quoted by two Spanish bishops in 385 AD Priscillian and Audacious Chlorus it's quoted by Casadorus, who's the church leader in Italy in 840 AD it appears in the marginal notes of the Greek manuscripts number 88 and 629 it's part of the text in uh, the Latin, Latin manuscripts which I just mentioned are um, and many other evidences we've got that existed right from the start. Now, if it's in those manuscripts, if it's, if it's got this historical reference, why has it become this question over it? Well, simply because a few hundred years ago, we have two individuals, Westcott and Hawke, who decided they wanted to come up with a new version, as it were, of Scripture. They wanted to translate their own. And unfortunately, they relied on these other manuscripts. And so consequently, you'll find that it's omitted. And I would be doing you a disservice this morning if I didn't bring this to your attention. What you do with it is up to you. But again, I've said these things before. We cannot just dismiss it and say it doesn't matter. Because people's faith has been shaken because they don't understand. And it is a great thing to talk to Jehovah's Witnesses about. Let me just take you back to that text a second. Verse 7, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And now you show a Jehovah's Witness that, and they will try and tell you, oh, it's not in the original. And you'll say, no, it's not in yours. But it is in the original manuscripts. And then you can point out to them that there's a number of things in the version they use that have been changed and have been altered. And that then causes them to have that question, what can I trust? And it actually becomes a very good point of conversation. So I leave it with you and prayerfully consider it and do what you will with it. So let's just uh, conclude. Okay, so in the last chapter of 1 John, These things have I written unto you that you believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Again, what a statement, that we may know. This isn't hope, guess, pray, wonder, but that we may know it. Well, the second epistle of John is a very short uh, little epistle. You'll notice it's addressed to the elect lady. Now, there's lots of comments and commentaries about us not knowing who this individual is. Um, I would suggest, looking at the, the details here and just what we know of Scripture... This is actually written to Mary. 
Because Mary was entrusted to John's care at the time of the cross, you remember. And who of all the ladies that were known to John at this time would he consider the elect lady, if not Mary? It just makes it an interesting uh, letter in that sense. And it really just starts, speaking of uh, love, that we should walk in love, it's the divine insistence in love and then the human expression and so on. And then moving on to doctrinal issues as well. Again, just a very short little letter, encourage you to read it. One of the verses that really does spring out is verse 7 and 8. It just says, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And then verse 8, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Now, the implication, of course, is that it's possible not to receive a full reward. And, of course, this has been one of the recurring themes that we've seen as we've gone through the New Testament this year. Well, the third epistle of John. We have three individuals that are mentioned. It's written to Gaius, um, this individual, who's this great person, a great man of faith, um, and you see the introduction in the first few verses there. But then we have a reference to this Diotrephes, um, and he clearly has got his own interests at heart. And really, you can see a lot of similarities in many congregations uh, and problems that can occur when people are just out for what they want. Um, and then, in the kind of closing words, you've got mention of this uh, Demetrius. Again, real positive things. We don't know much about Demetrius but the fact that he's recorded here in positive terms as a man of faith and so on is, is a real great encouragement because sometimes people don't know all the things you do. They don't know your work, your labor and so on for the gospel, the things you do for the Lord. But that's okay because we're not doing it for other people. We're doing it for the Lord. And it's just one of those characters, just a kind of a side comment in verse 12 of this short uh, one chapter uh, book, letter, whatever you call it. Um, but it's recorded. God knows. God sees. I think that's very encouraging. Encourage you just to read through these as well. And so let's just uh, just spend a few minutes just concluding, looking at Jude. Now, Jude, uh, I'll leave you that breakdown. Really, it starts by talking about apostates and then some of the things that we can do to contend with and deal with those things. But Jude simply starts and says, "The servant of Jesus Christ." He was actually a brother of Jesus. But he doesn't play on that. He doesn't make a big thing of that, as James was. We talked about this a few weeks ago in James. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. We could spend all morning on those things. But mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. And then he says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, he's saying, I started to write, I put pen to paper, and I started to write, but it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Really, Jude's saying, I wanted to write about our common salvation. But you know, the Lord has laid up on my heart that I have to tell you that we've got problems. Because you have got to earnestly contend for the faith. Because there are many who will look to twist and distort and to turn the faith that was committed to us upside down. He says, for there are certain men crept in unawares. Now, just like Jesus spoke of in the parable in Matthew chapter 13, the wheat and the tares, and the tares are sown, and they grow up alongside the wheat. We didn't even notice them come in, and yet suddenly they're there, they're in the church. 
It says, who were before of ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, really, Jude starts really hammering this theme about the danger of these people. And he starts warning a number of things he brings in. He says, I put you therefore in remembrance that though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not. Now, an analogy, of course, is very much like the wheat and the tares. They'll grow up together. In a sense, Jews saying they were all delivered from Egypt, but not all of them were saved because the Lord allowed some of them to be destroyed. Just as the wheat is being gathered, or firstly, the tares are gathered into bundles and then they'll be burned. And I believe that's a reference to the tribulation. But And then the wheat will be gathered into his barn. Interesting. We're then given this uh, allusion here. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, has he reserved in everlasting chains unto darkness, unto the judgment of the great day. Now, if we had more time, what I would say is this. Um, the word habitation there is a Greek word, oketerian, and it refers to a dwelling place for the spirit, literally a body. Now it's talking about angelic beings who kept not their first estate, the place where they dwelt, and left their own bodies, is what it's implying, their own spiritual um, homes. He's reserved in everlasting chains. Now, of course, when does Scripture record this event? Well, you have to go back to Genesis chapter 6, and you read there of these angelic beings that left their estate, they had intimate relations with the women of the earth and they produce these giants and so on. And many people struggle with that. But you cannot get around the fact that that's exactly what this verse is saying. But it's interesting because it's saying, he has reserved in everlasting chains unto darkness, unto the judgment of the great day. Now, that word unto, and uh, the Greek is just a three-letter word, is eis, E-I-S, and it's literally referring to a point in time. He's reserved these angelic beings, which are under judgment, of course, but for a specific time. He's reserved them in everlasting chains, under darkness, up until the judgment of the great day. And I think that's quite interesting, because I think what we'll see, and we'll look at this in the next couple of weeks, is that these angelic beings, the Lord will allow to be released on the earth again during the time of tribulation. And we'll talk about that in the next couple of weeks. So just bring that to your attention. Jude also makes reference to Enoch. Now, Enoch... One of the, the really, really early people in Scripture. Uh, Genesis 5, we have recording of this individual. But we're told, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these. Again, these people that kind of come in and deceive and so on. He says, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Well, the first comment we can make is, if the Lord is coming with his saints, they must have gone to be with him prior to this. And again, we know, we've looked at this already, that the church will be raptured, taken out of this world, and will come back at G- with Jesus at the second coming. And again, this prophecy recorded somewhere around 5,000 years ago. Uh, maybe just a touch more than that, uh, but somewhere in that time frame. And it's a prophecy of the second coming. An incredible prophecy at that point. And the reason that the Lord will come back is to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and all of their hard speeches which they ungodly ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You kind of get the impression that Jude is getting quite wound up 
about these individuals as he writes this. As he starts to think about these people that have rejected this amazing, gracious, generous offer of salvation for anybody. And people have rejected it. And as he writes this, Jesus is saying, you know, God will bring judgment. He says, these are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts. Well, isn't that a picture of the world today? And their mouth speaking great swelling words. Well, how many prominent people do we have speaking things against God, against the Bible, against God's laws and God's standards? Having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. In other words, they've got to some sort of position and they love the admiration they get. You know, they've got advantage. They've, you know, become very respected in our community. And there's a number of people, we won't mention people like Dawkins and so on, you know, but there's a number of people that have elevated themselves. They love the positions they're in and they speak great swelling things. Well, Jude is saying they will be judged. And the people that follow after them are going to be just as much um, difficulty and problems. So, well, to conclude, one of the best couple of verses in the New Testament I'm not sure how many times I've said that as we've gone through the New Testament, but verse 24 and 25. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Wow. Isn't that lovely on its own? And to present you faultless before the presence. <laughs> we don't deserve this, do we? And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Saviour. Be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. What a statement. That you and I, who deserve God's wrath, are going to be presented faultless. Not with a few things that still need to be sorted. No, we'll be presented absolutely faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Wow. Wow. To the only wise God, I say, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and ever. Amen.